The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. There's a a somewhat odd Russian film from the 1970s uh, called The Stalker. And it, it, it's semi-post-apocalyptic. Uh, it's kind of got some weird, weird vibes to it. Not, not a recommendation, um, but it's worthy illustration. Uh, the, so it's, it's set in this time where there is a, a particular area called the zone. And the government does not want anybody to be able to enter into the zone. Because inside the zone, you go in further, there is a place understood as the room. And if you're able to access the room, you're able to see it and gain access to it and go to it, then that room will, be, will grant you your deepest desire. Now, the, the catch was, it was not a, hey, you go to the room and kind of jot down on a piece of paper and, and feed it to the room and it's going to like churn out what you want. Um, it's not just kind of like what you tell it you want or other people think you want. It's able to, in some sort of mystical way, like peer into your soul and discern what you actually want? What is your actual greatest desire? And that's the thing that it would externalize and kind of produce. And so the government's fearful, like what would happen if people actually get there and this starts happening? Um, so they're trying to protect it. But the two pro- protagonists that are, that are moving things forward, trying to get to the room, they, they have to, to wrestle with this question. Do I really want to find out what I actually want? Because I, I don't really get a debate. Like when I show up, it's not kind of, well, but I, but I thought I wanted this because... At the end of the day, we may not want the thing that we think we want. We may not want the, want, the thing that we, we project to others that we want. To say, this is what I'm pursuing, this is what I'm about, this is what I desire, this is what I'm after. Do we actually know? Do we actually know the things that we, we long for? Well, in, in one sense, it's unavoidable. Uh, we will orient our lives around the things that we desire, the things that we think will, will bring us to the greatest place of satisfaction, of joy, of rest, of comfort, of the things we long for. But we'll begin making these sacrifices, taking our time, we'll take our energy, we'll take our education, we'll take our relationships, we'll take the things that we know how to do and we'll begin directing them toward securing a certain kind of life that we think will satisfy us. It has led some philosophers and theologians to, to describe at the most basic level a human is really what we want. You are what you want. Or you become what you want. The things we desire give shape to our lives. And then over time, that begins to form us into a certain type of human. Well, Jesus, he understands all of this about us. He understands that, that what we long for is, is kind of the, the core of us as human persons. That's why so much of his ministry, um, he, he's initially asking these questions to people. So maybe they come up to him, they, they heard about him, or they heard some of his teaching, and, and they begin to interact with him. And often it's, it's some variation of the question, what do you want? What are you seeking? Whom do you seek? What is it you want me to do for you? He's trying to draw out these particular longings that, that these people have. And you see this all throughout his ministry. Uh, his ability to, to enter into the things that we want 
and then to expose their, their end and really to turn them on their head. Because here, here's the thing with the things that, that we desire. If, if I want approval, so if I want, if I want approval from all of you, it's like I, I'm up here, it's like hey, I just want people to, to validate or to like me, then I actually become a slave to that validation. I actually give over uh, control um, to you all, to my experience of, of people right now or what they say afterward, or I actually become a slave to this sense of validation. I say, I'm, I'm led by my wants, I'm so free. But actually I've enslaved myself because I, I need something from somebody else to be okay. And it may not come, it may not be there. We can go on down the line. I need a certain relationship to be okay. I need this person to, to enjoy me, to like me, to, to accept me, to pursue me. I need work to look a certain way. I need to have a certain degree of, of power or freedom. I need to enjoy my life. I need to, to have certain experiences. All of these things that we may feel so free in the moment as we're pursuing them, but they actually over time enslave us. And so Jesus, in his kindness, he's able to enter into those things that we want expose them for what they are, and then turn them on their head, and we'll see what he does in response to that. But we see this all throughout his ministry, in his parables. You know, he's telling these stories, often uh, with the religious elite as part of the audience. And he, he tells the, these stories in such a way that uh, they're initially kind of brought in, identifying with the good guys. It's like, oh yeah, we know who we're supposed to be in this story. And then usually toward the end, he will turn it. You'll have this turn and realize, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. He, he, he just made us the enemy. Like he just made us the bad guys in this story, which is why some of that, that animosity would grow over time. But even the examples he would use in the parables were, were pushing against the structures and the systems of the world that he was in. Choosing very low professions in the eyes of the world. Not, not people with great positions of power or influence or authority, but just used everyday common experiences. That extended to who Jesus spent time with. You know, every culture has those groups of people that, that society will tell you like, well, you're not really supposed to, to be like them. You're not supposed to associate with them. You're not supposed to like them. You're not supposed to agree with them. Uh, just make sure you're not identified with those groups. Every culture does. It. Every subculture has their in and their out. And, and, and Jesus just worked against that. He, he, he went against those that were deemed the sinners those that were morally untouchable, and he would, he would share meals with them. He would interact with them. He would invite them in to become his disciples. Those who were despised by, by, by many in the, in the Jewish culture, the, the, the tax collectors who were often Jewish, but then would, would do things for the, the Roman government. He would invite himself over to, to dinner and spend time with them, which is like the greatest form of commun like communing with someone in an intimate way was sharing a meal with somebody. Jesus would push against these assumptions and these ways of being. Jesus was, and he is, subversive. Now, to subvert something is to, to undermine its authority and its control. Uh, to take a system, to take an institution, to take a life system individually, and to, to undermine that and expose it and work against it. When we see him do this here in the text, if you close your Bible or... Uh, Shut down your phone. Maybe you probably didn't shut it down. Do people shut down their phones anymore? I don't know. You let it go dark. Uh, turn it back on. Uh, chapter 27 of Matthew. We're in, in verse 27. 
Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. All right, can you see the scene here? You, the, the sentence has already been, and judgment has already been passed. A condemnation has been doled out already. Like, this is just the moments leading up to the actual crucifixion taking place. And so the Roman soldiers see an opportunity to have some fun. Like, great. Like, here's a, a Jew. We don't like the Jews. Some of the Jews actually see him as like a king or a, at least he's a rabbi and has some influence in this, in this society. Um, here's our chance to have some entertainment before he goes and dies on the, on the cross. So they bring him back to their buddies at the garrison. And it could be up like 700 or several hundred guys uh, just crowded around and they have basically a mock enthronement. So they understood like you, you honor your ruler, you honor Caesar, you honor the king. Uh, but here like th- this isn't the king, this is some Jewish nobody that we get to, to spend our time shaming and mocking. And so they, you know, they, you want to be a king? We'll, we'll make you a crown. We'll pull some stuff from a bush and got some thorns on it. We'll place that upon your head. You want to wear a robe? Well, we'll grab some rags over here, something that one of our soldiers used to wear, and we'll kind of drape that around you. We'll grab something over here, and that's, that becomes your reed. Oh, we're going to bow down before you because you are the king of the Jews, so you claim. This is directly in line with how the Romans treated their criminals, especially those whom they, they saw as trying to rise above their station in life. Those who were, were pushing against authority, those who were kind of rejecting what was handed down to them and challenging the system in some way, They're about to lead him away to be crucified, and the cross is the greatest example of this. Uh, One author, Joel Marcus, says this, for it is revealing that the criminals so punished by crucifixion were often precisely people who had, in the view of their judges, gotten above themselves, rebellious slaves, or slaves who had insulted their masters, or people of any class who had not shown proper deference to the emperor. Not to mention those who had revolted against him or who had demonstrated disdain for imperial rule. Crucifixion was intended to unmask in a deliberately grotesque manner the pretension and arrogance of those who had exalted themselves beyond their station. Crucifixion, then, is designed to reveal the essence of the crime. Here we're, we're seeing, perhaps in fullest display, the upside-down nature of Christ's kingdom. You know, we've, we've used this artwork, different variations of, of upside-down crowns. You, know, you can see the decal in the back windows when you guys come in. Uh, we, we, we've kind of rotated through different ones that our, our artist, Lane Gearkink, did for us a number of years ago. But it's, it's to represent just how upside-down Jesus as king is and the type of kingdom that he's established in comparison to what we assume is actually good and glorious. Uh, the, the ways of the world and establishing power and authority and structure and influence, the things we need to be okay, Jesus comes in, he enters in, and he subverts all of it. That's the first thing I want us to see, the subversion of Christ. Jesus enters into, exposes, and reinterprets the structures of our hearts and lives. I mean, notice he's not pushing back 
He's allowing himself to be shamed, to be mocked. You know, our depictions of Jesus on the cross are often way too tame. He was naked hanging upon the tree. It was designed to be shame-filled, to say, oh, you want to be raised up? Oh, you think you're, you're an elite? You think you're a king? You think you're someone of, of, of power and influence? We'll raise you up. We'll raise you up and nail you to a tree and allow you to hang naked, ashamed, mocked, derided. But Jesus submits himself to this. He enters into it in order to chart a different way, in order to demonstrate where true power was found, to demonstrate what, where the good life was actually found. It's found in him. It's found in trusting the voice of our Father. This is what Jesus does with us as well. How do we understand power? How do we use the power that's given to us, the agency that we have, the influence that we have, the voice that we have to extract benefit from other people, uh, to keep others down? Well, Jesus shows us a different way, to, to give up the power that was rightfully his in order to submit himself, to demonstrate that, that true control, true power is found in entrusting ourselves to God our Father. How do we engage in pleasure? Do we see our lives and our experiences and our money and our bodies just as kind of avenues to, to grab more pleasure, to grab more satisfaction for the moment? Well, Jesus offered up his body, offered up his, his ability to experience momentary pleasure so that he could find his greatest pleasure in the voice of the Father, to know his identity as a son of the Father, and to say, I will go your way according to what you have said based upon this identity. Well, how do we pursue freedom? In many ways, this has become kind of the chief value in our culture, freedom, autonomy, you know, a sense of no constraints. No one's going to tell me kind of what I can pursue, what I want to do. We try to craft our lives in different ways so we can, we can throw those things off and say, I just want my desires to be pushed out into the world and for no one to challenge that. And here we see Jesus actively giving up his freedom in order to serve, in order to trust the voice and the will of his Father, and to say, this is the way that true freedom is brought about and the way that it's experienced, is by trusting the voice of the Father. Jesus is so kindly disruptive and subversive with these things that we run to, with these idols, with these values, with these things that we kind of try to supplant his kingship and his kingdom in our lives. He, he doesn't allow us to stay there. He pushes against it. And I appreciate what, what Nancy Guthrie says about this. It is a grace from God when he exposes the powerlessness of our idols. It doesn't feel like grace. It feels like conviction or even loss. We find ourselves grasping and desperate. But then we have a choice. We can turn away from whatever we're looking to for significance and security and turn instead toward God to meet our needs. Or we can keep trying to prop up our idol, giving it another chance to satisfy us. We can do everything in our power to rid God from our lives, or at least some parts of them. Or we can invite God to have his way in the whole of our lives. And this actually brings us to the second thing I want us to see. The cross of Christ. In exposing the foolishness of our pursuits, he then rescues them, us from them through his death. 
He doesn't just disrupt. He doesn't just expose. He doesn't just shine a light on it and subvert. He actually provides the very means by which we can be delivered from them. And that's through his death on the cross. Look at me back in verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. So just picture the the physical weakness, the emotional distress that Jesus is experiencing here. These Roman soldiers were the ones who were, were mocking him and humiliating him. They're not like, oh man, he looks a little tired. Let's find a, a friend to help carry the cross. So he, he is unable to go on. He, he perhaps on all fours, like not able to carry this cross any further to his place of crucifixion. So they, they yank someone from the crowd and say, all right, Simon, you do it. Verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. So this is probably something to, to dull the senses a little bit. It's like, man, let's show a little bit of compassion. Some people around are like, maybe you won't have to feel quite as much. And, and Jesus refuses it. And we're going to get into this here further in the text, but, but he is, he's going to, to drink fully of the wrath of God. He's going to, to, to become sin most fully. He, he wants none of his senses to be muted or dull as he takes in all that is necessary for us to be made right with God. Verse 35. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So this, this passage, the one right before it, there's just so much mockery and derision and shame and humiliation. Jesus just remaining silent, hanging there. His, his fellow you know, people hanging on the cross who were who rightfully condemned as insurrectionists who were trying to push against the authority of Rome. They're hanging there and they're spouting off criticism toward him. Then you've got people who are just kind of like walking by on the path and they're, they're remembering something that Jesus said. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's Jesus. Didn't he say he was going to like tear down the temple and rebuild it? He can't even save himself. There he is hanging in humiliation. And you've got the religious leaders saying, uh, uh, quoting, if they're aware or not, but they're quoting from Psalm 22 there in verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. But they, they, they change it. In Psalm 22, a messianic psalm, which there's already so many allusions in this passage to the, the mockery and the shame of the Messiah, of the dividing of the garments. But here they quote verse 8, except they turn that last part. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now. In the psalm it actually says, for he desires him. Uh, they're pushing up against Jesus. Oh, you've made these bold claims. You've lived a certain type of life. You've taught these things. You've had these followers. But look at you now. Look at you now. You cannot even save yourself. So they throw that out there saying, oh, you know, if you can save yourself, you've saved all these other people. If you can save yourself, then we'll, we'll believe in you. But here's the irony. If he were to come down off that cross saving himself, 
he would not be able to save anyone else. The religious leaders claimed they would believe him if he came off the cross, but we actually believe him because he stayed on the cross, bearing what was necessary for us to be invited in to life with God. But then we come to the strongest allusion to Psalm 22. Look with me in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So creation itself recognizes the light of the world is being crucified. Verse 46. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling for Elijah. He said it in Aramaic. They didn't quite understand. Like, oh, calling for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. The others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. There's a little bit of debate as to what exactly kills you in crucifixion. Uh, it could be just because you're, you're trying to, to pull your body up as you're hanging from your arms to, to breathe. And eventually your body gets so weak that you're not able to pull yourself up enough to, to get another breath. And so you suffocate and die. Now, others will say, it's probably not that initially. It's going to be the loss of blood that takes place. You know, sometimes they would be wrapped to the cross. Other times, if they wanted to be a little bit faster, then they would, would nail them to the cross. And the blood pouring out. And for Jesus, his side cut. Uh, Jesus experienced excruciating physical pain on the cross. Absolutely. But there was a greater pain that he experienced that we see in him crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here is the, the second person of the Trinity, God's son, who has experienced intimate communion, perfect union with the Father and the Spirit from eternity past, knowing nothing but love and enjoyment and delight and celebration, the joy that, is, that has existed from forever within the triune God. And here in this moment, in this moment, he experiences a break in communion with the Father. Even during his earthly ministry, he didn't experience that. Intimately walking in step with the voice of the Father, so clearly receiving his identity, the, the, the blessing from the Father. But here in this moment, the excruciating pain that Jesus most of all felt was a break in that experience of communion with the Father. Why? Some will, will say that when we look to the cross of Jesus, it's, it's most of all an example it's most of all something we look to and say, wow, look at, look at the sacrifice. We should also sacrifice. Look, look at how he loved. We should also love. And it, it is an example. It is an example for us. The biblical authors speak to that. But before the cross of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion upon it is an example, it is Jesus taking upon our sin, our shame, and the wrath of God that we deserve on our behalf. In that moment on the cross, Jesus became our sin. He was condemned for us. Now, talking about the wrath of God is, is, is less in vogue in 
21st century Western culture. Um, talk about wrath in a city like Denver. It's like, no, we want, well, it hasn't been recently, but we want sunshine. We want mountains. We want enjoyment. Like I moved to Denver uh, to, to enjoy those things. Let me talk about something like the wrath of God. What about love? The way that scripture understands it, there is no love of God if there's not a corresponding wrath of God. You consider that the God of the cosmos, the God who has spoken reality into existence, all that is, he has created by his voice. And he created humanity to, to image him, to represent him, to trust him, to walk in accordance with his voice, and then to show his love and his character with one another. And we see because of our rejection of his wisdom, of his voice, what has spiraled throughout human history, in our own lives, the things we ourselves have done. How can God look upon this and say, that, no big deal, doesn't need to be dealt with. I'll just, I'll just look the other way. No, God, because he is loving, because he is active in saving a people for himself, justice must be satisfied. God is love. And he is also holy. So what's God to do? These two things that feel so opposite. What's God to do if he's to love humanity and yet still maintain his righteousness and have his wrath be poured out? I think we see it in no better place than Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And they get this, verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just and the justifier. How, how does God maintain love and justice at the same time? He looks upon us and says, I, something must be done. The wrongs must be righted. Justice must be satisfied. The wrath of God must be poured out. And yet he looks upon us and he, he loves us. He wants her to be a way for us to be welcomed back in. He wants relationship with us. He made us. He made us as his image to represent him and to relate to him. And so the only way forward is for God himself to take on human flesh and to absorb that punishment, to absorb that wrath, to absorb all that we deserve because of our sin himself. He maintained his justice, wrath was poured out, but he became the justifier, inviting us in because of his love. Jesus becoming the propitiation on our behalf. There's a fun Bible word for us, propitiation. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God for us. There's, there's no more wrath for those who are in Christ. There's no more punishment. There's no more condemnation because he was condemned for us. It's why the cross is so central to Christianity, to understanding who Jesus is and what he has done. It's why Paul will talk about in 1 Corinthians that he preaches Christ and Christ crucified. Yes, there's other things to talk about. He's got a whole letter, several letters 
There's a whole Bible. But at the root, at the core, at the crux, we come to the cross of Jesus Christ, where he dealt with our sin, where he made us right with God, where now there's no more condemnation and we're brought back into restored relationship with him. John Stott has said this, it was by his death that he wished above all else to be remembered. There is then, it is safe to say, no Christianity without the cross. If the cross is not central to our religion, ours is not the religion of Jesus. And this leads us to the last thing I want us to see, the invitation of Christ. Jesus frees us from condemnation through his affliction and for life in his kingdom. It's, it's worth us asking the question, what is, what is Jesus subverting in your life right now? What is he disrupting? He does this. He does it from his love. Doesn't always feel like love. Usually doesn't. But what, what's he kind of messing with right now? Maybe it's relational. Maybe it's stuff from your past. Maybe it's with work. Maybe it's just your own journey with God and the claims of scripture. Maybe it's multiple things. But what is he kind of getting inside of and beginning to push on the edges of that it feels uncomfortable, that there's something he's, he's doing? Can we receive this as the mercy of God? That in his kindness, he, he, he enters into the things that we want and the ways that we try to build around what we want, and he begins to shake that up a little bit and say, actually, there, there's a different path forward, and it, and it centers on him. It centers on his life and his voice and what he's communicated. But the cross of Jesus frees us to be able to see all of the affliction, all of the difficulty, all of the disappointment, all of the areas of pain in our lives, all of the, the areas of discomfort. All of that is part of what God is doing to bring about our joy. I think of my own wrestling with anxiety and depression, uh, particularly in my, my 20s, just like seasons of, of just darkness, disorientation, confusion. Now, in the midst of it, it's like, God, God, what are, you, what are you up to? This doesn't feel like grace. This doesn't feel like you're present with me. I feel your silence. I, I'm longing for something different, but it's not coming. But to be able to, to look to Jesus there on the cross and say, if Jesus entered into that kind of suffering, absorbed that kind of shame, then perhaps there's hope for me. Then perhaps there's hope for me to participate in similar afflictions and actually know that there's life on the other side of this death, whatever that looks like for you right now. I think too of relational tension that I've, I've had throughout the years. Uh, one in particular a few years ago was someone really close to me and, and, and some hard things, but I think true things had to be said and it led to a breakdown in that relationship and really to the point of, I, I don't know if this is gonna be restored. Like, is this going to be reconciled? And sometimes they're not. In this case, eventually, work through it. Like the relationship went through a death of sorts and actually had a, a rebirth on the other side. But in the midst of it, pain, sorrow, loss, total loss of control, not knowing what was on the other side of that. But can we, in those spaces, behold Jesus on the cross and, and see that him suffering and dying, that led to his resurrection, that led to the life on the other side. And God works in these ways. There's a death followed by a resurrection. Will we allow him to have his way with us? 
I also want us to see and behold one more thing the cross has accomplished for us. And this is the freedom from our sin. Look with me, verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. There in verse 51, the curtain was torn. This was some debate as to which curtain it was. It was likely the curtain that divided the Holy of Holies from the priests and then therefore everybody else. The Holy of Holies, this is the place in the temple where God manifested his presence fully amongst his people. And the curtain being torn is now his presence being shot through to the entire world. We now have access to God because of the work of Jesus on the cross. We're able to enter in with full confidence, being honest before him, being received by him. He's brought us together. And we actually have a, I think, historical depiction of what it looked like when the curtain was, was torn. Uh, from the garden, the curtain of the cross, the children's book, which I highly recommend. Uh, but there on those pages, it says, the curtain tore, God had ripped up the keep out sign. God's wonderful place is open again. Because Jesus died, we can go in. We have access to God because of Jesus' work on the cross. You're able to go to him, fully confident that he receives you, he hears you, he loves you, he knows you, and he does not send you out of his presence. Then in verse 52, well, the, the earth shook, and then these, these tombs are breaking open. And the, I mean, we just got to own it. There's some weird things in the Bible, friends, and this is up there. Um, at, somehow, at the crucifixion of Jesus, the old saint, like the, the saints of the old covenant, like some of them sprang loose from their tombs. Like who, who they showed up to, who they talked to, what that experience was like. They're like, trying to, did they reveal themselves? Like, hey, I was, I was dead, and... Now I'm like, I'm talking to you. Um, here I am. Here's the point. We don't know how it played out historically. Here's the point. What, what was keeping them in the tomb? Death had now been defeated. Jesus became death so that we may know life. We're, we're in Eastertide right now, which means we, we walk. We're recognizing again that we walk this side of the resurrection of Jesus. We need to pay attention to the cross, center on the cross. Yes, and there is resurrection life because Jesus did not stay dead. He rose from the grave. He walked around and he talked and then he ascended and he gave us his spirit. And now we have that same resurrection life flowing through us even now. So what does that mean for us? I, I, I want us to see the beauty of the cross for the li- our lives here and now. Appreciate what, what John Murray says. The atonement is the provision of the Father's love and grace. Christ discharged the debt of sin. He bore our sins and purged them. He did not make a token payment which God accepts in place of the whole. Our debts are not canceled, they are liquidated. Christ procured redemption and therefore he secured it. He met in himself and swallowed up the full toll of divine condemnation and judgment against sin. 
He wrought righteousness, which is the proper ground of complete justification and the title to everlasting life. Grace thus reigns through righteousness unto eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, we are free from condemnation. You are free from shame. The sin patterns that you cannot shake, the sins you have that still plague you from your past, that maybe show up in your dreams or in your, your thought life and you feel the condemnation and the shame of those things, you are free. The shame you've experienced in this life, the things that have been done to you, you've been set free. Martin Luther, the, the reformer of the 16th century, was a man who was very gifted in many ways, but also plagued with voices of accusation his entire life. And I so appreciate and have come back to often what he says in response to that. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell, what of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. We do not need to run from, from, from reality in our own lives, the places where we have run from God, from our sin. We can name that before him and know, yes, I have done those things. Yes, I deserve judgment. Yes, I deserve hell. Oh, but I know one who has suffered. I know one who hung upon the tree. I know one who bled and died, had his body broken so that I may be brought into the perfect presence of God. I know this Jesus and he knows me. So say what you will, but I am free in Christ. This is the reality that we walk in, friends. There is no voice of condemnation. There is no voice of shame that has dominance over you, that has the rights to your soul any longer. It is the voice of your father who in Christ says, I love you. I delight in you. You are my beloved son or daughter with whom I am well pleased. May we walk in this resurrection life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for setting us free. May we walk in that freedom. May your voice drown out every other voice. May we behold the cross. May we be shaped by what you've done there. And may we taste more and more of the freedom that you provided for us. I pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.